I wonder if anyone has ever heard of the Wicked Bible. Anyone ever heard of it? We should have a picture of it on screen. It was produced and printed in 1631 in King James English. But the publishers were found 300 guineas or whatever currency it was that they used at that time because it contained one tiny little misprint. The third word in the 14th verse of Exodus 20, which meant that the seventh commandment actually read, you shall commit adultery. That's why it's known, obviously, as the Wicked Bible or as the Adulterer's Bible. I think it's on display in London, actually. You can go and see it. Clearly a misprint. But sadly, so many in life seem to follow the ways of the Wicked Bible rather than that which is true. What is behind this seventh commandment? What is God saying to us when he says, you shall not commit adultery? What is God saying with this seventh word of grace from the very mouth of God? Why is this so utterly important? Well, these are the questions we're going to be trying to answer tonight. First of all, just by simply exploring God's design for sex and marriage. Then again, just as we have been doing in recent weeks when we've been considering these commandments, holding the mirror up to our culture, see what's reflected there before again holding the mirror up to ourselves and seeking to know the right thing for us to do. First of all then, let me explain what God is saying through his word and through offering this seventh commandment as he upholds for us the satisfaction of marital Fidelity. This is God's point, okay? He is essentially reminding us of what Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 explains to us about how God has instituted marriage himself. Having created all things, declaring them to be good, there was one thing that needed to be very good, and that was, for a, it was not good for a man to be alone. So God made a woman, Eve, to be Adam's helper and bride, God in Genesis 2 essentially walks Eve down the aisle officiating the first wedding between first man, first woman, thus God setting the precedent that marriage by a creation ordinance is a gift for one man and one woman to enjoy and as a result God declares that this is very good. Marriage is of course in his eyes a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. We know it's lifelong because Jesus has said in Matthew chapter 19 verse 6, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And indeed, if this is what God has intended for marriage from the very beginning, to be one man, one woman, in marital faithfulness, if this is his design for marriage, who are we to change it? Who are we to question the design of the great architect of heaven and earth. We're not called to question it. We're really called to esteem it. The book of Hebrews reminds us with that command, let let marriage be held in honor among all. But not only is 
marriage a good gift from God, sex within the confines of marriage is also a good gift from God. It's God's idea. He made it. He invented it. And he has placed certain restrictions on sexual appetite and sexual practice in order not to be a party pooper, but to maximize our enjoyment of this gift and to do so within the confines of a loving obedience on our part towards him. Sex is God's good gift, fashioned only for marriage. That means that all of those intense desires and passions that that we may naturally feel out with marriage, indeed bridled in our youth, exercising disciplined restraint in singleness and even, yes, in engagement. When marriage takes place, such desires and such passions are released for the building of an incredible relational bond with husband and wife. As you seek one another's pleasure to the glory of God. It's his design. He made it. Needless to say, God has designed sexual relations between a husband and a wife, though not just for pleasure, but for having children. And all of that within the bounds of marital love and covenant-keeping faithfulness. And what God is doing in this for us is giving us a picture of his covenant faithfulness towards us. We've, uh, someone mentioned this recently from the pulpit, I think it was, it was Paul, when we have marriage is not just an illustration which shows us what God's love is like for his people. So that covenant faithfulness, that relationship that he demonstrates towards us, uh, giving of his own self uh, through Jesus Christ, his son, to redeem us, to rescue us, to demonstrate his love. No, marriage has been a divine mystery now revealed to us as that which helps us understand God's relationship with his people. He is a covenant-keeping God, always faithful, and expects us to be a covenant-keeping people, always faithful to him. This is his design for marriage. This is what God holds up for us as, as the way in which we can enjoy and maximize our enjoyment of marriage and of sex within their proper bounds so that we might walk in obedience to him and live for his glory. This is essentially what he is calling us to. Now, this does not underestimate at all that even our sexual desires are are some of the most powerful forces that we can experience in our lives. But the point is, controlled and used as God intended it, sex is one of God's greatest gifts when practiced within the bounds of marital faithfulness and covenant-keeping love. Take that good thing, though, and remove it from that God-ordained place. Make it a centerpiece. And that degrades and destroys relationships. I want us to see that. I don't think people do see that. I think people see their desires. I think people think they should be fulfilling those desires. Well, yeah. In marriage. Nowhere else. 
What does our culture say to something like this? I mean, God upholds the satisfaction of marital fidelity, saying marriage is a good gift from God. Sex is a good gift from God, used within their proper bounds. If we hold this mirror up to our culture, what do we see? Well, we see culture really undermining the offense of adultery. I mean, the results of a Gallup poll recently conducted in, uh, even in July 96, not that recent, but recent enough, even revealed that almost half of the population thinks that adultery is wrong in all circumstances. Now, that's okay, but at the same time, 46% of respondents in this particular survey considered that adultery should be and can be frequently justified. So just short of half of the population of Britain thinks that adultery is no big deal. They think that it doesn't really matter. And that's no surprise for us given that sex takes center stage in our modern society. I mean, remove it from from films, from the songs that we listen to, from adverts, even the conversation of everyday life uh, in the workplace and and wherever. Really, there, there wouldn't be much left. And adultery, of course, is always a favorite, not only in the plot lines of our dramas, even our sitcoms just make an absolute joke out of it. And as if it's not enough to have it on the front, front page of our newspapers, saturating the magazine stands at our news agents, it's, it's just everywhere we look. People taking this good gift, completely removing it from the context of marriage, practicing sexual relations out with the bounds of marriage, and indeed those who are married still not considering covenant faithfulness to be of much importance. Indeed, it seems like the marriage contract, if you like, is the one contract that people really aren't that bothered about breaching, which is desperately sad. John Adams is the author of a book on divorce, and he writes, yes, marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles, you know. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of. It's indicative of a vital and searching mind. You must accept the reality, should I, that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer good for you, can be the most successful thing you've ever done. It can be a problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. That breaks my heart. The assumptions are absolutely glaring in this, in our culture. Marriages, by definition, are temporary. Change is inevitable. Personal preference takes precedence over the interests and the emotions of your spouse. Losing marriage is a positive, not a negative. And it's an evidence of personal strength, not weakness. Let me ask you, do you think they're right? Do you think John Adams has anything good to say in that? Have they taken, has he taken into account the creator's wisdom, noted the shattered love of a faithful partner, the broken heartedness of innocent children? It's devastating. 
I've seen it in those closest to me, you know. It's dreadful. You know, our military nowadays use these things. Oh, what are they called? I've just had a mind blank. Bombs. Not just bombs. Special kind of bombs. They drop them and then they basically blow up after blowing up. And the collateral... Someone knows? I can't hear you, but you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Cluster. Did someone say cluster? That's what it was. Cluster bombs. Yeah, devastating. I mean, these guys drop one bomb, sadly. You know, and from that initial explosion, many, many other explosions right away. That's what it's like. It's collateral damage in life and in relationships. Not only between the husband and the wife, but socially, even in terms of job. It's devastating. The collateral damage is devastating. Does that sound like personal triumph? Not to me. Here's what I want us to do with Proverbs 5. Turn over there with me. I want to undress the scandal of adultery. I want us to freshly see the the scandal of this. First of all, by seeing the deception of sexual sin. Can I have the next slide? That's it. Thanks. I mean, this this text in verses 3 to 6 in particular, look with me again. The lips of an adulteress drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. We get that, don't we? I mean, that those sexual behavior is is tempting in that sense it sounds smooth you think it's going to taste good but in the end she is as bitter as gall sharp as a double-edged sword that sounds painful to me her feet go down to death her steps lead straight to the grave she herself gives no thought to the way of life her paths are crooked she knows it not this text for us rips the mask off of sexual temptation. It demonstrates for us truly, here is adultery before your eyes. It might look good. You might think it's going to taste good. But this is bitter. This is bitter. This is not life. This is not enjoyment. This is death. Okay? Her steps lead straight to the grave. That's not personal success, if you ask me. We know what this is like, don't we? We hear these, this kind of speech. A little coaxing, some flattery, a little bit of inappropriate flirting, some kind of assurance even that this kind of conversation is harmless. Being with this man or this woman one-to-one, you know, it's a harmless activity. We're just friends. Well, I think we've heard lots of the lies that we experience, uh, that we've read about, sorry, in, in Proverbs 5. The lies which entice us. Go ahead. Touch her. Get close to him. Log on. Click that next video. It's harmless enough. Just a little fantasy won't hurt. Maybe God won't mind a little compromise. He's forgiving after all. Oh, I can't control my sex drive, some say. I can get away with this. This 
is harmless. Proverbs 5 tells you this is far from harmless. It leads to death. Mark Vogel, he was a man who thought that keeping dangerous pets was a harmless thing. He lived in Austria in a house with a tank, with, with, with tank after tank of spiders lining his walls. Amongst the spiders was Bettina, his prized spider, a black widow spider. His neighbors said he was absolutely thrilled to be so close to so many exciting species. He spoke of them even with such affection. But in February 2004, police raided his house to find Vogel dead on his floor with his pets gorging on his body. The pathologist report declared that death occurred within moments of being bitten by a black widow spider. That's what happens when we coddle sexual sin and pretend it to be harmless. It's to death. We are called in verses 4 to 6 of Proverbs 5 really to see the lies of the temptress for what they are. They look sweet, it's bitter. Sharp as a two-edged sword, that's lethal. Sexual sin is not the playground Hugh Hefner has made it out to be. It is a battlefield where people like you are destroyed day after day. Destroyed not only in terms of life now, but sadly many out there destroyed even in relation to eternity. It displeases the Lord then when people who should be looking for marital love His perfect design, his perfect blueprint for marriage and covenant faithfulness in love. When people who should be looking for that kind of marital love settle for casual sex, all we end up doing is using God, using desires he has given us for good purposes and using them for evil. Well, I don't just want us to see the deception of sexual sin. I want us to see the regret of adultery's aftermath. The section in Proverbs 5 between verse 9 and 14 really is a catalogue of the consequences of falling into sexual sin. Verse 9 points to us of, of the loss of dignity and respect. Verses 12 to 13 tell us about being filled with remorse. Verse 14 even speaks about Uh, public disgrace amid the whole assembly. As I said earlier, the, 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 the aftermath of adultery really is absolutely devastating. I mean, we even see that in the Bible, if you're looking for an illustration. You can see in King David's life, in 2 Samuel 11, he was the one who was out, if you remember, just walking on his roof at night, uh, and there he sees Bathsheba uh, preparing herself for a bath. And immediately he should have turned away. But his steps were leading to destruction there, weren't they? He didn't look away. He entertained the thought. He explored with some of his servants. Who's that? Oh, that's Bathsheba, the wife, get the emphasis on that, of Uriah the Hittite. Still sent for her. David was found out. And the consequences were shocking. The aftermath of that adultery left Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, completely innocent party in this dead. I mean, that's just an illustration from us, even from the Bible, that 
you know, the consequences of a moral tumble are absolutely horrendous for you, for your spouse, your children, your family, your church. If you're a believer, you're God. But there's a big question in here which just cries out, is it really worth it? Even to see, you know, families, not just families torn apart, but pregnancy occurring. And sometimes abortion after that. How personally your conscience can be seared, that's deadly. How even in the realms of pornography, you know, people don't think that they're harming anyone by logging onto those websites, but actually statistics show 90% of the girls that you look at have been forced into the sex industry because of poverty or coercion. doesn't sound harmless to me. What Solomon is trying to do here, and Solomon is a guy who knows what it is to have many wives. I mean, Solomon had that many wives. He could have gone to bed each night with a different partner for three years. Do you think Solomon's saying, my son, this is the way to go? No, he's saying, son, listen. Use discretion. So he said in verses one and two. He's just like, get this. This is devastating. Resolved by God's grace never to go down the adulterous path. The question that's begged of all of us in this, of course, is how do we make ourselves aware of the deception of sexual sin so that we might honor this seventh commandment? How do we avoid adultery in the inevitable aftermath? Well, this is where Proverbs continues. In verses 7 and 8, we can understand the value of safe distance. How we forget that lesson. Keep your way far from her. In other words, run for your life. I mean, this is the Joseph principle, isn't it? I mean, keep yourself far from that temptation. And if you find, for some reason, that this temptation all of a sudden just finds you out, even when you, in maybe naivety, weren't expecting it, Maybe you were cornered in a way like, just flee. Just get out of there. And realize, I, I, I sense I'm, I'm maybe speaking to some of the younger folks in particular here. The time for applying this principle is not behind closed doors when your flatmates are out. Or when the door is shut. It's when the thought is coming into your mind. Run for your life. Not only do we understand the value of safe distance, unlock the power of God's omniscience. I love Hebrews 4.13, which tells us, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I heard a, a, a true story of a, a, a pastor who was counseling a young couple. And uh, they were confessing that... They, as they were going out, they were a young Christian couple, they were having sexual relations. And when they told the, their pastor, he says, yeah, I know. Someone saw you. And they were like, oh, well, who, who was it? You know, was it, was it my flatmate? He said, no, no, it wasn't your flatmate. Oh, was it one of the neighbors? Did they say? No, no, it wasn't your neighbor. Was it you? <laughs> no. No, it wasn't me. Well, who was it? 
Oh, it was the Lord. The sad thing is, they responded by saying, Oh, well, we know he sees us. But yet that should be the very thing encouraging us to see God's omniscience and God's faithfulness and the constancy of his presence with us that we must steer clear of sexual sin and ensure that we seek to honor this seventh commandment. But not only do we unlock the power of God's omniscience, undertake this principle of mortification. One of the ways the Bible talks about dealing with our sin in particular involves putting something to death. That's what the word means, to to mortify something. It's really what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 29. Turn over there with me. Matthew 5, 27 to 29, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus is not advocating here a literal self-maiming, of course, but a ruthless moral self-denial. Not mutilation, mortification. It's a bit like gardening. I've heard it described in this way. We need to weed sin out of our lives. Reminded me of a time when I first arrived uh, to the church at St. Andrews, moved into the area there. I attempted an overhaul of the garden. Quite a few weeds to deal with and some tree stumps as well. The stumps, of course, were the hardest to shift. They they took a pickaxe, hard work, and a brother-in-law. But there are other smaller things which actually were a bit more difficult in some respects, like horsetail. I mean, talk about a product of the fall. You know, horsetail, this stuff. I mean, I started off just by going out with weed all, spray, 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 you know. And not really much happened to it. And then I decided to get one of those pump action sprayers, you know, that you get. So I went out and I scooshed away. And, and again, not much happened, unfortunately. So then what I ended up doing was just getting a bucket, pouring in a whole packet of sodium chlorate, and just chucking it all over the thing. Do you know what? Grew back. <laughs> Difficult to root out because the roots are deep. The system of roots is so complex, just like our hearts. We need to root sin out. We need to put things to death. We need the word of God to speak boldly into our lives, to help us to know how to do that. And we need the fellowship of one another in the life of a church to know how we can honor the seventh commandment, how we can put to death these, these sexual sins which cause us to commit adultery. We need to undertake true mortification of our sin. Of course, the text that we've just read from in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is really challenging our hearts in relation to adultery, we see him unveiling the very root of adultery for us. Where it's not just our outward physical practice that matters, but the very inclination of our hearts matters. 
what we do with our desires that matters in other words this the, the recognition of God's good gift of marriage and God's good gift of sex within the bounds of marital faithfulness it's not just about what someone does with their body it's about what happens in our hearts and Jesus makes clear his expectation for the people this commandment stands against adultery with our eyes with our brains with our imagination it commands the attention of all that we are so Jesus gives us a heightened standard we can't fantasize about this kind of sexual sin you can't enjoy the thought of it Jesus says essentially that in the very deep and complex root of your heart lust and adultery are the same thing he didn't say that they necessarily have the same effect humanly speaking as the as the actual sin of adultery but he tells us that in very essence they are the same And seriously, we need to understand here that in the realms of adultery and sexual sin, entertaining lustful desires in a world like ours is like lighting a match in an oil refinery. And to ignore or mute the lethal reality of sexual sin and indeed adultery is to cut the very nerve of the gospel. It sears conscience and affects conviction. If this mirror is held up to you tonight, what would you see? If you're married, have you been keeping covenant faithfulness in love of your husband or your wife if you're not married have you committed adultery in your heart through lust we all struggle with these things we all look in the mirror of God's law and in God's word and we see blemish after blemish we do not see a clean reflection we see dirt, we see muck, we see ourselves as God sees us. And indeed, we need cleansing. The good news is that God demonstrates for us not only what he thinks about adultery, but what he does about our adultery. You see, it's, it's no mistake whatsoever that throughout the whole of Scripture... God, who has indeed created us, in a sense, wed to himself in the very beginning, that he considers our turning away from him as the creator of all things and the giver of all good gifts so that we might enjoy life and worship him, enjoy him. When we turn away and make those gifts the thing that we seek rather than make him the one we seek, well, that's rebellion. That's spiritual adultery. In other words, by sinning, what we do is we take that which was designed to be specifically retained for the only one to whom we should give our love and our affection. We take that which should only be given to God in covenant, love and faithfulness. We give it to another. That's rebellion. That's spiritual adultery. 
God describes the people of God throughout his word, particularly in the Old Testament, in such stark and graphic ways to help us see how serious this is. I mean, even in Ezekiel chapter, uh, chapter 16 and in Jeremiah, there's lots of this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is, is desperate to see a people uh, returning to God, but they are so wayward. And God essentially says, by their spiritual adultery, this is how graphic, this is how serious God is about it. He says, I am just going to take them out. I'm going to lift up their skirts over their heads so they are naked to their own shame. Then maybe they'll see conviction. He's like, these people are so hard-hearted, they don't see it. In the book of Hosea, Hosea is directly told by God, I want you to go and take for yourself the wife as an the wife who is an adulteress so that you can know how I feel with my people and this is what God says I am going to I am going to expose the lewdness of that adultery the adultery of people who will just turn away from me to serve other things rather than serve me and keep that covenant love and faithfulness you know what God does? He does that. He takes in Hosea 2, he takes this woman, in a sense, out into the desert, exposing her nakedness to her shame. And then what does he do? Does he crush her? No. God says, then I will seek her. And then I will draw her to myself. I will show her the extent of my affection and show her the depths of my love and she'll be redeemed. This is what Jesus Christ does for all who feel the weight of the guilt of a breach of the seventh commandment. Jesus is the one who overcomes our spiritual adultery by showing us God's redeeming love where he comes into this world to show us the extent of God's love for us, for those of us who have broken this commandment, for those of us whose consciences are pricked by these things that we've been considering tonight. And he comes declaring God's love. He comes declaring true redemption and rescue, even from the sins that we've been considering tonight, if we will come to him in faith believing in his name, trusting that his blood washes us free from all of our sins. He redeems us by his great love. It's incredible what he does. And it is possible. Sometimes we just think, oh, I've sinned so much, I'm sure I don't deserve it. You keep telling me that God is loving and all that and he offers us forgiveness in Christ, but you don't know what I've done. Well, God's love extends to the vilest. God's love extends to all who will come to him in faith and in repentance. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, was a very stark indicator for us of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those whose life will lead to death. Do not be deceived, it says, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders will inherit the kingdom of God. That's, that's bad news. But here's the good news. 
the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 6 proves there is hope. After describing these various manifestations of sexual immorality, Paul goes on to say, and this is what some of you were. Ha! Past tense. This is what some of you were. What happened? I hope you're asking that question. Paul says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can truly have your sin forgiven. You can truly be set apart for holiness. You can have your whole status before God changed this very night. So to all who have broken or indeed will break the seventh commandment, I say God loves adulterers. God sent his son to die for adulterers. Jesus receives adulterers. So what must adulterers do this evening? The answer is simple, and it's the same today and every day. Repent and turn to Jesus in faith, confessing your sin, and receive the embrace of redeeming love. Let's pray.